church, good morning. So open your Bibles. Let's get into our Bible study. Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to be. We're covering a whopping seven verses today, but there's some incredible truth that, that we just need to talk about. We're going to see the topic of suffering get brought up here in the text this morning, and so we're just going to take some time. I just really felt we need to slow down. We need to talk about this, and so that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to be asking the question, why does God allow suffering? March and I have been getting that question a lot in different variations as we prepare for the Calvary Night Live. It's on your minds, and here we find it in the text. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll go through the text. We'll see what's going on with Israel. We'll, we'll see how there's some suffering involved, and then as we close out our study, we're going to look at eight different verses and really talk about suffering and answer those questions. Why does God allow it? What's the purpose behind it? What is accomplished through it? Where is God in the midst of it? What is true and what isn't true? So keep all that in mind. We're going to touch on that, but let's pray and we'll get into our study this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we come to you with with just anticipation, and yet at the same time, we, we come to you with desperation. God, we approach your word in need, not only for our daily bread, as we've been talking about, but also, Father, for, for truth and wisdom and light, for a recalibration of our compass. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and, and we want to make sure we're aligning up with what your word says. God, it's your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and you'd fill the precious hearers with your Holy Spirit. And, Father, you'd give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, hearts to understand what your word is presenting to us as it pertains to this difficult topic of suffering this morning. Father, give compassion where compassion is needed. Give grace over all of us because grace is needed. And, Father, just speak to our hearts. Bring illumination into the secret places. Father, we want to hear from you. We want to touch you. We want to grow in wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you as we look at your word this morning. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just get right into it. Exodus 17. Let's see where Israel is going to head now. We're going to look at verse 1, and then we're going to point some different things out at and, and move a little slower through the text as well. But let's just look at this. Exodus 17, verse 1 says this. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, as we slow down here, I want to point out at least three things from this first verse that sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And the first thing I want you to maybe circle or highlight or underline is the fact that all the congregation set out on their journey. I want you just to note that they're moving from the wilderness of sin. That's where they've been. That's where the manna was given to them, the bread from heaven. That's where God gave them the Sabbath. That's what we were talking about the two previous weeks. It was at that location, and they're continuing their journey to the next stop on the itinerary that God has planned for them. And we'll talk about that place, Rephidim, in a minute. But I just want you to know that they're on a journey, 
right? They're on a journey, which means this is not their final destination either. They're heading eventually to the promised land, but before that, they're heading to Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, that's kind of where things slow down, where God gets them to where he wants them to be, at the mountain of God, at Mount Sinai, where he's going to reveal to them his law. But that's what God told Moses back in Exodus chapter three. He says, once you deliver the people out of Egypt, you're gonna bring them right back here, Moses, and that was in Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, where he's going to pour, where he's gonna reveal his law to them. So just note that they're journeying there. Secondly, I want you to note that they're doing this according to the commandment of the Lord. That part's really important in this section too. Notice that according to the commandment. What that means is because God said so. Right? God gave a command to go. Now how it probably worked in this context is that pillar of cloud that is leading them by day and the pillar of fire that is leading them by night, it starts to move. And when God starts to move, the people are to move and follow him, which they do. So note that they're just obeying God. They're walking by faith and not by sight. They're walking by faith and exercising their faith through obedience. So according to God's commandment. And then thirdly, I want us to talk about this place called Rephidim. Their next stop is Rephidim. Now I imagine that the two plus million people who comprise all the congregation at this time are really excited to find out that they're going to Rephidim because this word means resting place or place of refreshment. That's what Rephidim means. So think about it. You're walking through a desert. You're leaving the wilderness of sin. You're traveling. And you know what happens when you're walking in a dry, desolate, dusty desert? You get thirsty. And I don't know about you, but there's there's really no thirst like desert thirst, right? Don't think they got their camelbacks. Don't think they got their big water bottles, their hydro flasks, right? They have, they have what they drank, and then they left. They're going to travel uh, some time, and they're thirsty, and lips are cracking, mouths are dry. In fact, at this point, some of them, many of them, are probably unable to conjure enough saliva just to make a comforting swallow because they're so parched, they're so thirsty. But I want you to think about that word is starting to spread through the camp as people are finding out where they're going. They're saying, hey, we're going to Rephidim. Hey, hang on, we're going to Rephidim. Hey, be patient, we're almost to Rephidim. And they all know this is a place of refreshment. This is a place of rest. I can't wait to get there. And what happens is they finally arrive at Rephidim. And what are we told at the end of verse one? There was no water for the people to drink. And I want you to know, what would we be thinking? What were they thinking? The same thing, thinking, really? You have to be kidding me. There's no water in this place? Somebody's thinking, who in their right mind named this place Rephidim? This is no place of refreshment. There's no water here. So everything is starting to compound. And here's where we see the suffering start to take place. They're thirsty. And now they're in a place where there's no water to be found. And with that thirst, we're going to see they're going to arrive at what I'm calling the intersection of suffering. All right? We all find ourselves, listen, we all find ourselves at the intersection of suffering. And what I mean by that is we have an option to turn one way or to turn another. And we're going to see the nation of Israel, all the congregation, they're all going to turn one way 
And Moses is going to turn another. But that's what happens for all of us at that same intersection in this dilemma. So when they're here, before we start talking about what they're going to do, I want us just to remember, when we're at an intersection like that, please know when, not if, when, what we need to do is slow down and think about what we do know, right? Instead of being like, there's no water, there's no, what do we also know? We know that we're on a journey. This is not the final destination. We know we're here according to the commandment of the Lord. We know that the place is called Rephidim, a place of rest and refreshment. Just because it isn't happening now doesn't mean it won't ever happen, right? Because the first two are true. We're following the Lord. We're, we're here according to his commandment. The third one is going to be true because God is faithful. So while I wish we would now say, and then look at how the nation of Israel responds. What a great example. We want to follow that. What we're seeing is an example not to follow. What we're talking about first is what not to do when we find ourselves at the intersection of suffering. This is the way not to turn. So take a look at how they respond here. Verse 2 says this, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Think about this situation. While they're suffering, they're going to fall into the snare. They're going to do three different things. This is how they're going to respond at that intersection. Three things. Number one, they're going to start demanding things of God. Demanding. Not asking. Not praying. Demanding. Number two, they're going to start denying things concerning God. And number three, they're going to start doubting God himself. That's like getting three D's on a report card. Nobody wants D's, right? But that's what's going to happen. Demanding, denying, and doubting is how they're going to respond. And listen, that is one way that we can respond to suffering. But listen, that's not the right way. So look at what happens here. They demand, at first they're, they're coming to Moses, they're contending with Moses, and they're saying, give us water right now. Give us water right now. And I want you to understand how serious this is, how intense this moment is. We're told that they're ready to stone Moses over this. Don't think that they're like, man, I really just could use some water. Like, give us water now or else. Give us water now or there's no telling what we might do. They're coming at Moses with such intensity that it's bringing the escalation of this moment where they're, they're actually to the point of saying, we want to murder, stone, hurl rocks at Moses until he dies because we're so upset about the situation. It's intense. But can you imagine Moses here? They're, they're coming at him. They're blaming him. They're chiding him for their suffering in this present situation. And can you imagine Moses? He's sitting here. I imagine him looking around saying, what do you think? Do you think I'm holding out on you? Do you think I have 784,000 gallons of water in my tent for you? Like, why are you coming at me? Do you not think I'm just as thirsty as you are? Right, Moses is in the exact same situation. In fact, think about this. 
Moses spent 40 years tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep in this same area. If there's anyone who knows what's out there and what isn't, it's Moses. So when Moses is walking, I, I imagine Moses, every single time they take a step forward, he knows he's getting thirsty too. And he's thinking, God, I don't know where you're leading us. The people are going to need water and there's no water out here. But every single time that thought comes across Moses' mind, but he says, but I know you've provided in the past as he reaches in his pocket and grabs a, a manna wafer and pops it in his mouth. As he takes a glance up and sees the pillar of cloud representing God's very presence, guiding them as he remembers the Red Sea, as he remembers the, the plagues and the signs and wonders of, of Egypt. He's like, but I know, I know that you're gonna provide. So I'm not gonna take my thoughts towards the demanding, denying, and doubting. I'm gonna take my thoughts towards the trusting and abiding, even though it doesn't make sense. But the people are doing the latter. They're contending with Moses over this situation. And they're coming at him with such hostility. So Moses is thinking, guys, you need to know where God guides, he provides. That's a funny little cliche thing, but it is absolutely true. We've seen it over and over again in the book of Exodus. Where God guides, he does provide. Where God leads and we follow, he fulfills what he promised he will, he will fulfill. That's what he has. So I imagine Moses saying, why are you coming at me with all this animosity? Why are you tempting the Lord? by making demands of him. And those are two things, kind of sub two. Remember, we've got the big three, the one, two, three things, the demanding, the denying, and the doubting. But under the demanding, got kind of two sub points. They're looking for people to blame, and they're testing God by making demands of him. And those are two things that we can find ourselves doing when, when things aren't going well in our lives. And I want you to catch that. The first one is, when I'm suffering, when I feel hurt, when I'm going through a difficult time, one of the things that we all have the capacity, maybe even the tendency to do, is we look for someone to blame. We look for someone to throw rocks at so we can make ourselves feel better. And I want to tell you, Christians, that will not make you feel any better. That will make you feel worse. That will just make a bigger mess of the situation. Moses isn't to blame here. And all it does is further cause separation from the the path that we should be on when we fall into that trap. So don't do that. But the second thing is they're testing the Lord their God, making demands of him. And and that's something we're, we're explicitly told not to do. Do not test the Lord your God. Understand that what they're saying is they're saying, do this, prove yourself to us, or we're going to kill your servant Moses. I'm, I'm getting this from Psalm 78 and Psalm 95. You can read these later in your study guides. I referenced them both, but this is what, what God is inspiring these psalmists to write. He says, your fathers tested me. They tried me, even though they saw my work. They learned who I am, yet they forgot. And they tested me. What they're saying is, prove yourself again to me, Lord. Think about this. What you've done up until this point hasn't been enough. Give us water or we're not following anymore. Can you imagine that? I mean, again, we're talking about people who have seen the 10 plagues and signs and wonders of Egypt. We're talking about people who stood on the shore of the Red Sea, watched it part while they walked through on dry land. We're talking about people who are seeing, seeing a, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, manna raining out. We're talking about people who have seen the incredible, mighty, supernatural, awesome work of God. And yet now they're in a place where they're saying, yeah, whatever, either give us water or we're not going to believe you anymore. That is ridiculous. 
But that's what demanding can do in a time of suffering. We say, God, fix this or else. Do we ever do that? Do we ever feel like we're making demands of the Lord? Like either you prove it now or not. Listen, we don't ever need to do that. All we look back is at the cross of Jesus Christ and see what he's done for us. He's proved himself already. No matter how it looks in the moment, no matter how it looks tomorrow, what he's done stands forever. Our, the object of our faith is the crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus. We can look back with confidence and then look future with hope. So don't get all caught up in the circumstances like they're doing here and get all demanding. That's not what they're supposed to do. They're, they're being rebuked by this here. But the second thing they do after demanding God's provision, the second thing they do is they're going to deny God's protection. In this suffering, they're literally saying God is trying to harm us. That's what they say at the end of the end of or the verse three. They say, why is it that you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're denying God's very protection over them, accusing God once again. Oh, you have some other motive for us now. You just want us to die out here of dehydration. And notice, not just us, but also our children and our livestock. You want to just wipe us all out. Now, that's an honest feeling that they have, but that's a false accusation. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel, again, some of you know this all too well because you're in this moment now. You're in a position of suffering, of difficulty, of challenge. But many of us, we've been there too. And when you're in that moment, you're kind of thinking, God, do you care about me? God, do you see what is going on with me? Are you aware of what's happening? And we can even get to the point where we deny God's protection over us, where we deny God's favor in our lives, where we deny God's good and purposeful plan because we're now relying on our own human perspective and we're letting our imaginations run wild. Do you know that's exactly what's happening here? They've shown up to a place, they don't have water, it doesn't make sense in the moment. And so now they're assumptive that they understand big picture of what God is doing in the long run. They don't have any idea beyond the moment that they're in because we as human beings, we are not omniscient. We're not all knowing. We don't get to see the big picture. If we are going to rely only on our human perspective, we are very, very limited and short-sighted. So don't make accusations based on a moment. Make statements of faith based upon the big picture, based upon who God is and his eternal faithfulness. But they're demanding God's provision. Now they're denying God's protections, assuming he means harm for them, which he clearly doesn't, and he's proven that. But what can happen in the moment of suffering? And then the third thing, lastly, we're seeing that they're doubting God's very presence with them. And we get that at the end of verse seven. Notice the question in quotations. They say, is the Lord among us or not? They're now doubting God's very presence. Listen, because they're thirsty, because there's no water at Rephidim, they're now questioning whether God is with them at all. And isn't that crazy? They're still digesting manna from the morning. They're still able to look out and see there is the cloud of God's presence. But what happens, we can all get short-sighted. Suffering can make it feel like we're all short-sighted and all we're doing is looking at ourselves and looking at our situation and focusing all of our thoughts and energies inward. 
instead of keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus outward and seeing he's never been nearer. He has never forsaken us. He has not abandoned us. These are feelings. These are thoughts, but they're not true. I need to take him captive to the obedience of Christ, to what his word, what the Bible says, and I need to cast out the nonsense and rest upon the truth. But they don't do that, and that is true. All of us can follow each of these same patterns when we find ourselves at the intersection of suffering. Letting our imaginations run wild, being very assumptive to think all of these things are true when they are clearly not. Now, someone may be thinking here and saying, you know, some of this, all of this that we've just talked about, all of this response, the contention with Moses, the wanting to stone him, all of these, you know, these triple D's, all of these things could have been avoided if God just let him do a place with water. So here comes our question. Why does God allow suffering? Why didn't he just lead him to water in the first place? If he led him to water, I mean, we need water. It's, it's a pretty essential thing to life sustaining. Then all of this could have been avoided. And I want, I want you to hear this. Listen, that's true in part. Some of these things that we just saw could have been avoided. But listen, only temporarily because they're all still there in their hearts and minds. Please listen. If it's not this moment, it's just another moment. If it's not this trial, it's just another trial. If it's not dealt with here, it's just going to be dealt with later. It's just going to have to be dealt with later. So all of these things get fleshed out. They get brought to the surface because of the suffering. That is one of the things that suffering is very effective to do. It reveals the foundations upon which we stand. It shows us the priorities that we've ranked in our lives. It shows us what is most important to us. I love to say it this way, storms reveal foundations. Have you built your life on the sand? That will not last in the storm and the storm's going to reveal that. And do you know who wants that revealed? Your father in heaven who wants you to build your life upon the rock. So he's going to allow it to show you, to expose to you what's most important to you. And remember several weeks ago when March was talking, teaching through the, the, the bitter waters of Mara and how God made the bitter water sweet and he, he tests us. And how he, he told us, he, he reveals, this is God's heart. God doesn't test us so he can learn something. He knows everything. It's so we can learn something. It's so this contention and all these things can be brought to the focus and say, wow, you know what? Do you know what? What I really thirst for the most is just my physical comforts to be met. You could sum all this up. What's really going on here for all the congregation, listen, all except Moses, maybe some others that aren't named, but but Moses is named and all the other congregation is named as contending against the Lord. And what's the issue? My physical comforts aren't being met. It's like saying what I really, really, really want is just water. If I could sum up my entire life existence, what I really, 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 really want is water. Listen, that's not what God wants us to really, 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 really want. And when suffering comes and it exposes what we thirst for the most, we need to ask that question, what do we thirst for the most? What do I hunger and thirst for the most? I'm saying the the pinnacle, the top, top, number one thing, what do I thirst for the most? Listen, it better not be just water because the Lord's gonna teach us through this moment, he's gonna teach his people through this moment, what he really wants his people to thirst for the most is him. 
is his presence, is more wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who he is. As the deer pants for the water, so our souls pant for the Lord. We thirst for the Lord, right? The the beasts of the earth, they can long for water the most, but we, image bearers of God, we Christians, we have tasted and seen that God is good and a taste is just not enough. What we thirst for the most is more of him, is more of him. And if I've gone to a place on a journey following him, and if I've been there according to his commandment, and if it's called a place of rest and a place of refreshment, and he is there, it is. I don't need any other physical comforts. I just need him. I want him. And God's going to use this entire situation to point that out to all of his people as you thirst for this water. I want you to thirst for me. I want you to come to me and I will give you what you need. That is what is all being set up here. As I think about this idea of thirsting, there's an illustration that has always stuck with me. I heard this illustration within some of the first couple years of walking with Jesus. And I love that. I was that, I was that believer who my eyes were opened. I was blind and now I can see. And I, I had like two Bible verses to, to the entirety of, of my foundation of understanding what the book has to say. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot that I understood, but I was zealous, man. I was passionate for the things of God. And I was looking for who's going to disciple me. And this, this older gentleman gave me this illustration. And he said, I want to tell you, so here's the illustration goes like this. There's, there's a young disciple and, and what he wants is he wants to be, he sees this Christ likeness in this older man, this guy who's walked with the Lord for years and years and years and his marriage and his kids and all these things just, just look, and Jesus has been in this. And this young guy says, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I just want to make sure I'm going to get there one day. So he comes up and says, hey, tell me your secret. How is it that you've walked with Jesus through, through ups and downs, but at the end of the day, here you are still walking passionately with Jesus? How? The old, the old disciple says, I'll tell you, I'll teach you, I'll show you my secret. And so they wade out into some water. They wade out about waist deep into some water. And they're talking and they're reminiscing and suddenly, unexpectedly, that old disciple grabs grabs the young disciple, sweeps the leg, karate kid style, and just dunks him in the water. And this old disciple's holding him in the water, like, like holding him in the water. Young disciple, eyes open, saying, I don't know if this was the discipleship relationship I thought I was supposed to have, but he's holding him under. And it's almost to the point where it's too long. And at the last minute, that, that old disciple with that old man's strength just lifts him up and stares right in his eyes and says, do you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? Do you want to know my secret is as much as you were just thirsting for air, you got to thirst for him. Use that hunger, use that thirst for righteousness, for more of him. When you think about coming up out of the water and going, that biggest breath of air, that's how much we need Jesus. We need Jesus for our very next breath. And you may be thinking, well, that's radical. That's just for me. That's my opinion. That's a nice illustrative story. Do you know that's exactly what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed is the one who longs for more. Let your pursuit seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Use the hunger. That's a God-given hunger. And we use it. We spend it 
on such some of the wrong things. We use passion in the wrong places. We use our hunger in the wrong places when let's first give it to the Lord, find satisfaction in Him, and then let Him use some of those other passions in other areas. But the priority is right. Here in Exodus 17, the priority is all wrong. And so He's teaching His people, you now experience what it's like to thirst. But what I want you to experience is how you can find that satisfaction in me. So he's setting all of this up. So all of this in mind that we just talked about at this intersection of suffering, their thirst is being exposed. But what happens next? Let's read verse four again because it continues with what we're talking about. Verse four says, so Moses cried out to the Lord. Remember at the intersection of suffering, They go one way, demanding, denying, and doubting. Moses goes the other way. He cries out to the Lord. That's the way you and I Christians, that's how we respond to suffering. Look at what happens next. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. If you're facing near death in a revival, we can call that suffering, right? Not only is he thirsty, he's facing potential assassination. Verse five says, and the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel." So church, tune in for this. Tune, tune back in for this. You don't want to miss this part. Everything we've talked about up until this point has been set up for this moment. Here's the moment where God is going to show us his purpose behind suffering. Here's the moment where God is going to show us what is true in suffering and what isn't true in suffering. So he says, Moses, take up your rod. And he says, just so we're clear, that's not just any old random stick. That's not Aaron's rod. He says, Moses, take up your rod, the one that you used to strike the Nile River. Remember, that was the very first plague in Egypt when God works through the rod of God that is in Moses' hand and he strikes the river in judgment and it turns to blood. That was the very first, so it was a God, let's, let's be sure, that rod, that's the rod I'm talking, get it in your hands and come, you and some elders of Israel, and come and follow me. But notice, even the Lord says, go back before the people. God's not saying, Moses, all right, yeah, the people are mad at you, you better hide in your tent. He says, no, Moses, you need to trust me. You need to come back out before those people who want to stone you. You need to have the rod of God in your hand. I'm going to be your protection. I am with you. And then he says, my favorite part, and I will meet you at the rock. Moses, you cried out to me. Now come to the rock and meet with me. I will meet you at the rock in Horeb. And that should sound familiar to us. It was at Horeb, a lower summit near Mount Sinai, where God first revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter three in the burning bush. Same place at Mount Horeb or in this place called Horeb. Now there must have been some significant rock formation that was there which Moses would have known about from spending 40 years in this area, but God says, meet me at the rock in Horeb, and Moses knows exactly where that is. But check this part out. This is verse six. God says this, Moses, know that I will stand before you on that rock, 
and you shall strike that rock with the same rod that you used to strike the Nile River in judgment. I want you to strike that rock. But when it says here, when God says, I will stand before you, that word before you in the Hebrew, it means I will stand in front of that rock. I will stand in front of your face, Moses, is what he's saying. That's the Lord God we're talking about. I will stand before you. I will stand before that rock. And then he says, strike the rock. And that Hebrew word for strike, it means to strike it, to smite it, to hit it, beat it, slay it, kill it. All of those same words can be translated out of that one Hebrew word that we have in our text, strike it. So what is happening here is God is instructing Moses to use his rod and execute judgment, God's judgment, like he's done before upon this rock that God is standing before. And then water's going to come out and satisfy the needs of these people. Now, this is amazing, and it's difficult to kind of understand at the same time. We don't have enough detail to kind of understand everything that's going on here, or or what that even looked like. Was was God visible? Was there something there? We we don't know. We we trust what the Bible says. God says, I'm going to stand before it. God was there before it. And, And I get the picture that when Moses strikes that rock, if God's standing before his face, when he strikes that rock, he has to strike through the Lord to hit the rock. He has to pierce the Lord in a sense when he strikes this rock in order for water to come out to satisfy the needs of these people, to ease their suffering, to satisfy their thirst, to make Rephidim actually a place of rest and refreshment. This all has to be done. I hope you're tracking with me because this is an incredible picture that God is laying out for us. But just think about this. Moses is crying out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. God says, come meet me at the rock. And then he says, something needs to be struck. Someone needs to be struck. And God says, strike me. That's beautiful. Something has to happen. And God steps in and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the blow. And I want you to remember that when we're talking about times of, of suffering, when we're talking about suffering for doing good, when we're talking about having tragedy or circumstances befall us that we had no control over, unexpected things, I want you to remember the picture that we look back at. I want us to remember Jesus, he who knew no sin, who became sin for us. Jesus who suffered in our place to do exactly what we're seeing here, to ease our suffering, to satisfy our thirst, and to give us a rephidim, a place of rest and refreshment found in him. This is Exodus 17, but we're seeing this incredible picture laid out before us. When God does this, God is going to deliver his people by submitting to his own judgment. That rod of God represents God's judgment. It represented God's judgment upon the Nile River, and God says, you take that judgment and you can You can afflict me. I'll submit myself to my own judgment. That is incredible, but that is so Jesus. That is an incredible picture of what Jesus will do when God sends his son to die on a cross, to be struck, beaten, smitten, slayed, killed. Think about this, even pierced. Jesus is pierced in the side with a spear, and what comes out? Blood and water flow out. It's incredible. This is such a shadow, such a picture, but the fulfillment, the greater fulfillment is Jesus. But we want to know, why would God do that? Why would he suffer like that? 
for the same reasons that we look at him for our suffering. He looks back at us and he says, I see your suffering. I see that you're thirsting for all the wrong things that will never satisfy. I see that you are trying to find rest and refreshment in things that will never anything more than at temporarily satisfy you. But I am the rock that has been struck and will provide living water to flood your very souls. That's what is being pictured and shattered and even fulfilled here in this moment. So when you look at this, when Jesus says, I am the rock, strike me, God is showing that right here. I am going to stand before the rock, strike through me, pierce me, and then you're going to get the satisfaction that you need. So in times of suffering, when you find yourself at that intersection and you, you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm struggling with, with demands, I'm demanding God to fix this, or I'm denying something about the, the Lord God, or I'm doubting his very presence, you can turn the other way and you can trust the Lord, cry out to him, you can come to the rock and you can find that he is satisfying. You can find that whatever we're going through, he also went through it. We are in good company. When we find ourselves suffering for doing good, suffering for being a Christian, suffering in a world that's not our home, he told us, it's not your word, this is not our home, this is not the temporary dwelling place. We're journeying through under the commandment of the Lord, heading to a place that is full and final, eternal rest. So when things aren't going so well, take ease. Jesus understands, is able to sympathize with our every weakness. He knows he too suffered as we suffer. But this whole thing, to me, it's just, it's incredible. And to to make this even more incredible, or even in some regards, even more unfathomable, even more amazing to the glory of God, is don't forget how this whole chapter started. These people are ready to kill God's servant Moses. They're questioning everything about him. They're forgetting what he's done. They're testing and making him prove it, which is to say they did not deserve a drop of water from any rock. But yet God in his compassion, God in his amazing grace, while they were yet sinners, he's gonna provide water for them. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died on a cross for us. It's always been God's grace. It's never been earned. It's never been deserved. And that is exactly what God is picturing here. So as we answer some of the questions that this series has proposed, we're, we're talking about who is God. Look at some of the things that we've just learned about, about who our God is. Who is God? What does this reveal to us? God is the one who eases our suffering. God is the one who suffered in our place. God is the one who satisfies our thirst. God is the one who offers true rest and refreshment to our very souls. God is the one who submitted himself to his own judgment to satisfy his perfect judgment. That's beautiful. And it's incredible, but that's who he is. Now, to get even more practical, Jesus is also this very rock that we're seeing in Exodus chapter 17. Our first reference verse I want to show you this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 17. I just said that wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware 
that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. So he's speaking all of these things. They're eating manna. They, they pass through the sea, the Red Sea. They're following the pillar of cloud. He says, and they're drinking from the rock, the same spiritual drink. That rock was Christ. Can you imagine the apostle Paul, his mind just being blown as he would have memorized this text as a former Pharisee, memorizing the books of Moses, the first five books of our Bibles. And he's read this. He knew all about this rock. But then now that he's born again, the scales have lifted from his eyes. He has the spirit of the living God testify that all these things testify about who Jesus is. And he's able to say, that rock was Christ. That rock is Jesus. That is Jesus providing for his people. So he's like, this is amazing. He's connecting the dots. But we want to, well, where else would he get an idea like that? He'd get an idea like that from Jesus himself. In John chapter seven, we'll show that reference verse in a minute, but Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles or, or Shavuot or, or the Feast of Booths, all referring to the same thing. One of the three pilgrimage peas, one of the three pilgrimage feasts that God commands in his word for his people to attend yearly at the designated place, which in this day was Jerusalem. So Jesus goes to this. He's at this feast. And at this Feast of, of Tabernacles, they're remembering what we're reading about right here in Exodus chapter 17, when the people are dwelling in tents, in tabernacles, in temporary dwellings, and they're being provided for by God Almighty. But on the last day of the feast, the great day, this is where they're turning their attention to focus upon this rock where God is providing water to sustain the very life of his people. And on this last day, the priests in this day, what they would do is they would, they would get seven golden bowls and they'd go to the pool of Siloam and they would, they would fill them all up. And, it, and this is a day of silence. So everybody's watching and thinking quietly as, as they're watching these priests come back and they're dumping these bowls of water all around the altar in a horn that's next to the altar and it's running all over the ground. And everybody is thinking silently to themselves, that is what God did for his people. And they're thinking, wow, I can't imagine how thirsty I would have been. They're, they're getting thirsty as they watch all this water pour out and yet how God satisfied them. And in that moment, in that context, on the last day, in the day of silence. Charlie, show us that. Show us this verse. John 7, 37 and 38 says this. On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is saying is, I am still that rock. Those feasts are great for the remembrance of what God has done, but I want you all to know today I am still that rock. Out of your innermost being, out of your heart can flow torrents, rivers of living water, speaking about the Holy Spirit that God promises to give those who believe in him. Which means, listen, at the intersection of suffering, instead of demanding and denying and doubting, we can cry out to the Lord, meet him at the rock, and he promises in every season, in every circumstance, to pour out his Holy Spirit upon the one who asks him. 
torrents of living water flowing through your innermost being, giving you the ability to endure and persevere and sustain your very life through that moment. But it may be something you do daily, moment by moment, through some of those first minutes and hours of some of the greatest trials of your life. But I promise you, God will meet you at that rock every single time you go to him. It just might mean you need to go to him more often than ever before, but he will meet you. He promises I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he promises I will give this to you. I will flood your heart with life. That is a promise. Now, as we get back to Exodus chapter 17, and Moses, when he strikes this rock, I do not want anyone to think that there was this tiny, this tiny little trickle of water, like that, that little spout that you have next to your sink, that you kind of fill one water bottle up at a time. That is not what this looked like. Our title slide is the picture of a waterfall. Now, that may not be exactly like it looked either, but it was a pool and a fountain of water, so two plus million people don't die of starvation waiting in line, nor do they fight in a riotous rampage to get the water. Psalm 114, verse seven and eight says this, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. That's what he's able to do. People are able to get the water that they need to survive in abundance for everyone. Think about this. Everyone who goes to that rock to drink is satisfied and can drink their fill. And that is still just as true about Jesus today. That's what he says in John 7. Come to me. Don't live in cold, dead religion only thinking that God was moving in the past. He's moving today. He's moving right now. That's an invitation to you listening right now. Come to me and drink, and be satisfied, and be filled to overflowing. That's what Jesus would want you to know right now. That is why his word is being preached and preserved through this day, because it's still true, and it's still available. But as far as as Exodus 17 is concerned, this is what God has all set up to show his people who he is. This is a lesson for all of us that where God guides, he does provide. Even when things look a certain way, that doesn't mean that's the way they're going to stay. Jesus gets the final say. Keep trusting him. Keep abiding in him. He will work this situation out. So when you find yourself in the intersection, intersection of suffering, turns towards the rock. Come and meet Jesus again and again and again. Now, in this moment, God wants them to remember what they didn't do. So let's just look at verse 7 as we finish out this, this section this morning. It says, So he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God, God wants this place named contention and temptation because they turned the wrong way at the intersection of suffering and to remember that and learn from their example. Turn, f- turn to the rock before the temptation and the contention and the testing and trust the Lord. Now what we want to do with the time that we have left here is I want to move into this topic now just exclusively of suffering. I put several verses, I put eight, eight different sections of verses. There's more than eight verses there, but I, I found eight reasons why 
God allows suffering. And so I, I want to, in addition to all that we just talked about, right, plenty of reasons, right? He, he exposes our hearts. He exposes what we thirst for. He tells us he wants us to thirst for the most. I mean, tons has already came out of that. But I, I want to just continue to answer this a little bit more thoroughly because as I mentioned before, March and I are getting a lot of these questions. It's on your mind, which we love. We love those questions, but we also want to answer them. So I put these verses in your study guide, but these are eight reasons why God allows suffering in our lives. Eight things that result from the suffering that we, we deal with in this life. So as we set this up, let's talk about some of these things. Eight reasons. Number one comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, which says this. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what's the reason here? In this verse here, reason number one, why we endure suffering is because it's self-induced. It's because we reap what we sow. When we choose to sin, when we disobey the word of God, when we act in disobedience, there are consequences. There's no victimless sin. Somebody has to pay. And sometimes that's us. So these are self-induced. These are consequences of our own sin. And God, because he loves us, God, because we're legitimate children, and because he's a good and perfect father, he doesn't allow us to sin successfully. He corrects us, he trains us, he disciplines us, and it can feel like suffering because he says it's painful in the moment, but it's going to bear peaceable fruit for those who are trained by it. So one of the reasons, it's self-induced. We set this in motion and we're reaping what we sow. Reason number two is it fulfills God's will and his plan and his purpose for our lives. We suffer because it fulfills God's will and his purpose for our lives. This comes from Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Paul, as he pens this, is chained to a Roman soldier in, in prison. He's a prisoner of Rome. Except he never, he never qualifies himself. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is using this suffering and all that I've gone through, simply being an apostle and preaching the truth and being about the business, the task that God set me on. He says, God's using it for his purpose to fulfill his plan for my life. In fact, the prison epistles that we read, we love those prison epistles because God used that to get some scripture on paper and sent and now preserved and still a blessing to us. So God used that suffering to accomplish his will and purpose through Paul's life. That's what he does. Number three, why do we suffer? Why do we have to endure this? Number three, it makes us more like Jesus. Look at this, 1 Peter 4, 12-13. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
So Peter, using the illustration of gold refined in the fire, he says, trials, suffering, difficulty, it is one of the methods that God uses to make us more like Jesus, to hone in our dependence upon him, to hone in our sensitivity to his spirit, to purify Christ-likeness in us. He says, it makes you more like Jesus, which is everything we want. We want to be more like Jesus, and that's one of the most effective methods. So that's why God allows it. Number four, it produces endurance, character, and hope. There's three things there. I'm calling them just one, but look at this. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. But he says this, we glory in these things because they produce great character qualities. They produce in us perseverance. They produce in us character. They produce in us hope. Some of us are saying, what does that even mean? It means this. It means some of you have gone through some incredibly difficult times. My wife, we just celebrated her brother's 40th birthday yesterday. But he's been with Jesus for a while now because he was killed unexpectedly by a drunk driver. And that was one of the most painful circumstances that my wife's family has ever gone through. In moment by moment, seeking the Lord, coming to the rock, minute by minute, maybe even second by second for a while because it was so raw and it was so painful. But God got them through that. And you know what it taught them? Endurance, perseverance, hope. It teaches them now that when something else comes, they can go, God got us through that. We can get through this. And even more than that, from, from a testimony standpoint, we have another, another friend who's serving in a church in ministry and just lost another sister. And my wife writes a letter sharing her testimony for the comfort of others and speaks endurance into that situation because that's where she learned it through the suffering and the trial and the difficulty, even to where they say, God taught us this. We're better off as a result of that, even though that was horribly painful and I would have ought not gone through it. God still uses it for his glory, for a, a way to impart Christ-like character into our hearts. Number five, it produces patience and maturity. James chapter one, verses two through four, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Some of you are thinking, really, patience is what I'm gonna get at an end result of this trial, this suffering that I'm currently in? And I say, yes, but not the kind of patience that you're thinking while you're waiting in some waiting room somewhere. That's not the kind of patience. This patience literally means standing under pressure. You're gonna learn how to stand under pressure when the walls are closing in, when you feel like you're backed up to a wall between a rock and a hard place, when the narrow road you're on is narrow even further before you are, your eyes, you know because God has taught you through the trials and the suffering that you've endured that you can stand under pressure, that you can stand in the strength of his spirit, the power of his might armored up. You can stand. 
because God taught you that in your Rephidim. God taught you that in that place where you didn't know that you could. And you know what? You couldn't, but he did through you. And he taught you what patience standing under pressure really looks like. That's a great thing. Number six, it makes us stronger. First Peter five, verse 10 says, but may the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Listen, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It makes you stronger. I want you to see this in this verse as well. No trial lasts forever. Some of you, you've got a physical diagnosis and you're praying for healing and, and God hasn't granted that healing yet and, and maybe you're wheelchair bound or maybe some of your modalities are, are, are perishing as the outer man perishes. Listen, no trial lasts forever. You are not gonna carry that infirmity into glory, eternal glory. You're gonna be made brand new. You're gonna receive a resurrected body and all things are gonna be perfect. But while we wait in this, it is strengthening you. God is establishing you and settling you in the place where you can be perfectly confident that he is able to do what he's promised exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. It strengthens us. We find strength and sustenance in him. The spirit of glory rests upon us in our moment of affliction, unlike any other time. So it strengthens us. That's a great thing. Number seven, suffering is an identifying attribute of someone walking with Jesus. It just identifies us with Jesus. Second Timothy 3.12 says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But what it does is says, yes, you're a Christian. Yes, you're going the right way. Yes, you're living as a pilgrim and a sojourner in this world. Yes, this world is not your home. You shouldn't be perfectly comfortable here. Yes, you're swimming against the current, right? Suffering is, it's, it's a badge of honor because it shows things aren't perfect here and they aren't. But we can recognize that and say, God, that's exactly what you want to show me. That's why you called me to be salt and light in this world. That's why you told me to be in this world, but not of the world. This is exactly what you experienced, Jesus. Persecution, suffering, and no servant is greater than the master, nor would we want to be. Jesus is Lord, I'm follower, and that's all I ever want to be. I want to follow after him and be made more like him. Number eight, the last one, we could go for this for a while, but no, we're almost done. Verse eight says, or verse eight is the teaching, the point number eight, the reason why we suffer is it teaches us the true meaning of value. It teaches us what is truly most valuable. First Peter one, six and seven says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like we read in Exodus chapter 17, trials reveal priorities. Trials reveal the true thirst that we have. But what do we really want the most? I'm telling you, Peter nails it. What I really want the most is I want a faith that is gonna be found to praise, honor, and glorify Jesus at his coming. 
I want him to see my faith and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so even if it needs to be tested, even if it needs to be, be refined through some suffering, I know that my faith, my trust, my abiding in him, it's the most valuable thing we can ever experience on this end of eternity. Far more valuable than any precious metal or the gold that we strive for so much in this life. It's more precious. It shows us the true value of things. But just listen, those are just eight reasons that came from eight different sections of Scripture. This is not exhaustive. You could probably find some more. We could include Exodus Exodus 17. But I want you to think about this. Just looking at these eight reasons that we just went over, did you catch only one of them was self-induced? Only one of them was corrective. And listen, it was not because God was angry at us. It's because we're legitimate sons and daughters that he would choose to correct us. So we don't suffer because God doesn't care. We don't suffer because God is mad at us. We don't suffer because God is is out of patience with us. We suffer because God corrects us as sons or all the other seven reasons because he wants to impart some greater blessing to us that can only be learned and can only be apprehended through enduring that situation. Do you know what that means? Listen, just look, based on those eight reasons, do you know what that means? Is 87.5% of the circumstances in our lives that lead to suffering, trying, difficulty. It has a blessing from God that results at the end of it. That is beautiful. We've got to change our mentality about those situations. And we, when we find ourselves at that intersection, we don't want to turn back and start demanding and doubting and denying how awesome and faithful our Lord God is. We want to say, God, I, I don't like this, but I'm crying out to you and I'm going to meet you at the rock and I'm going to stay in that place until you satisfy my thirst because nowhere else can I find the words of life. They're only found in you, Jesus. And I don't understand this, but I'm going to cling to you until you get me through it. And that's what he promises he will do. So I come back to the whole thing. Come to Jesus. All you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who hunger and thirst, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning and say, Father, I need, I need that spring of life to be unblocked in my heart because I need some, I need some rivers of living water flowing through me again. And if you're here and you say, I've never experienced that. Today is a day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. If God is bringing conviction and bringing you to a place where you're saying, I need to come to the rock. Today is the day to say, Jesus, be my rock. Be my Lord. I confess my sin to you. I confess that I'm not living perfectly. I'm not living righteously, nor could I. But you did. You died on a cross for me, the death I deserve. You rose from the grave. You conquered everything that contends against me. I want you to be my Lord. I surrender to you. Come and fill my heart with living water. Come and help me endure the season that I'm in. Please come to the Lord in that capacity. Find him, abide in him, be met by him this morning. We've got a great song to close out with. And it literally says, all who are thirsty. If that's you this morning, if you're thirsty, come to the fount that never runs dry. Come to Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, this, this just beats my heart in so many regards, and I hope it's just connecting with other people as well, because God, I, I just believe it's your heart. Father, suffering is hard. and doesn't always make sense to us. But Father, I just confess that it doesn't have to. I just want to trust you through it all. I want to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, I want, I want you to do what, what you're revealing in our hearts as a desire for, for thirst. And I want, I want us to find it first in you, Jesus. 
You're the one who provides the living water. You're the one who satisfies every, every true heart's desire of our very souls. So God, all who are thirsty and tuning in right now, God, I pray that you draw them to repentance. I pray that you draw them to salvation. I pray that you draw them to the foot of your cross where they would find you and meet you and be born again by the power of the blood that was shed there and refreshed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. God, I just pray that you would do that. Do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.